I'm Alex Underwood. I'm the Managing Director of Empire Energy. We are an Australian company with a very large holding in the emerging Beetaloo shale gas uh, basin located in northern Australia. Alex, uh, thank you for the introduction. Good to meet you. Uh, I've watched the previous uh, few Crux interviews that you've done with Matt um, talking about uh, Empire Energy and the Beetaloo Basin. Um, what I would like to do today is to ask a, uh, a few dumb questions about the, the technical side of things. I'm, I am a geologist, but I haven't worked in a gas company for a very long time, at least eight years before I was come really looking at things um, closely. And as I go through your presentation and some of your news releases, there are just some things I don't understand. I think it'd be really, you know, if I don't understand them, it'll probably be helpful for uh, viewers to be kind of walked through some of the, the things that you're, you're doing. Now, just as a, as a, at, at a very high level, I mean, the, the first thing that I notice is that when you look at the, the Beetaloo Basin, you've got um, Candelaria, sorry, Carpentaria on the, on the eastern side, and you've got kind of the, the western zones uh, as well. You've got exploration licenses there. And then the, the, the central zones are held by other companies, San, um, Santos and um, Tambourine. Yeah, is, was that a deliberate choice to be on the flanks of the basin? It, it really goes back to the history of our company. So we were one of the first companies to um, lease up acreage in this part of the world back in 2011. That was before my time. Um, our former CEO, Bruce McLeod, who unfortunately is is no longer with us, he's looking down on us from the oil field in the sky, but he, um, he had had some great success trading uh, shale gas acreage in northeastern America, and he was one of the first people to recognise that shale gas had uh, potential in the Beetaloo and MacArthur basins in northern Australia. He, he chose to lease up a very, very large position uh, up through the middle of the MacArthur Basin, which goes further to the north. It was about 14.5 million acres. And that included at its southern end the Carpentaria Project, which is where we have been focusing our activities to date. Um, that project itself looks quite small on a map, but it's about 100,000 acres of drillable area, which is a lot of running room for us for many, many years ahead. Um, the properties on the western side of the basin were properties we acquired in a primarily share-based acquisition from a private company called Pangaea Resources back in 2021. Um, Pangaea Resources was owned by a highly successful Australian shale gas entrepreneur by the name of Paul Fudge. He is now our largest shareholder with 18% of the company and uh, he sits on our board. And um, Paul, Paul had great success in the coal seam methane industry in Queensland, which quite similar to the Beetaloo, it was a very, very large uh, gas in place resource. And it was technological changes that resulted in the commercialization of that, those basins and billions of dollars of value creation. And it was in about 2013-14 that Paul moved into the Beetaloo Basin, uh, drilled a number of wells, and and he has combined those holdings with us. So, um, you know, there are other players in the middle of the basin, uh, but it was really due to those historical factors that, that drove our 
holding as we have it today. Just, so that means kind of almost by kind of historical legacy, your holdings are on the flanks of the basin. I, I, I yes. noticed that your your well depths are around 1,600, 1,700 meters, and that some of the wells that have been drilled in the center of the basin are deeper. Um, yes. Is it, do, does that change anything other than the amount of drilling you need to, the cost increase um, that you need to do to drill deeper? I mean, is, is there any benefit for being at 1,600 meters other than cost or is it a disadvantage? Is is there a change of pressure, or you know, what does what does the depth depth do um, other than cost? Yeah, certainly. So um, the learned experience of the commercialization of many many shale gas basins across the U.S. is that there are different technical characteristics to deeper versus shallower areas. Um, deeper deeper rocks do certainly have more pressure because there's just more of the earth putting um, force down on top of them. And that tends to compress the gas molecules into the rock into a into a tighter area. Um, and, you know, all other things being equal, that increased pressure should have a beneficial impact on uh, the amount of gas that you can produce from a unit of rock at those deeper depth windows. Um, however, there are some other uh, countervailing factors to that. One is that as you go deeper, you tend to see that the permeability and porosity of these rocks uh, does tend to decrease, again, because you've got much more rock sitting on them and um, you know, putting pressure on and force on them. Um, what we have found so far in the, in the across the Beetaloo with both our drilling and the drilling of our neighbours is that um, certainly there is a very material cost advantage for us. Um, we've seen that we're probably running at about 60 to 60% to two thirds of the cost of our neighbours. Um, we've also found it easier because of that lower stress regime to get fracture stimulation away. And I'm sure we'll go into what fracking is and, and, and how it's opened up shale gas more in our conversation. Um, I would note that um, in addition to that also, it tends to have some impacts on the the type of hydrocarbons that are sitting in these rocks. So it's now been demonstrated in the Beta Lou that in the deeper parts of the basin, it's what we call a very dry gas, so essentially almost entirely methane. Uh, there's also a little bit more CO2 in those rocks, albeit still very, very low levels of CO2 by global standards, whereas on the shallower basin flanks, we have now demonstrated through successful flow testing that we have a slightly richer gas, so it's got a bit more ethane and propane, and these are premium gas products that tend to attract a higher price, um, and also lower CO2. Um, I think of particular relevance to this, if you look at some of the analogue basins in the US, um, you know, while it is desirable to drill deeper to get higher flow rates, um, it's all part of that economic equation around cost. And to use the Marcellus Shale as an example, an incredibly successful basin that goes through the uh, New England and Appalachia region of America um, and now produces 25% of America's natural gas, around one third of the 27,000 wells drilled in that basin have been in these depth windows that are very similar to our depth window. So I guess that's a fairly long-winded way of saying that, you know, first of all, it is quite early in this basin and we're still learning 
where the uh, so-called sweet spots are. Um, but certainly, you know, it's it's possible for everyone to make money at these various death windows. Thanks. Uh, it was um, that was exactly what I was looking for, kind of an, an explainer, <laughs> kind of a um, to, to just just to understand it better. And um, but let's let's go into um, the the horizontal drilling that you're doing um, and the, the 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 fracking that you're doing. But um, can we just kind of put that in the context of the the U.S. industry because? Uh, yeah. I always, I, I've, I've got this kind of the, this image in my mind that the U.S. is particularly cost-effective on the uh, unconventional gas, just because they've got so much of it. You know, they've you've got this yeah. whole industry around it. There's so much expertise. You've got so many different consultants, and that kind of drives down the cost to make things ultra-competitive. Um, and that you know, they're world leaders in the horizontal drilling kind of um, distances and 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 fracking. So. Before we kind of get into the detail of it, could you just kind of tell me where Australia is in the, the let's call it the catch-up game uh, with the US? Yeah, sure. Um, I've actually uh, personally got a lot of experience in that US shale gas industry because earlier in my career, I worked in Macquarie's oil and gas financing and investing team, which was called the Energy Capital Division. Um, although Macquarie is an Australian organisation, we only had about four or five of us in in the Australian team, and yet there were about thirty of us in Houston, Texas, and also a few people in Calgary. And um, we we were involved in financing and investing equity in the emerging shale basins across the US. So so I saw a lot of um, you know and and participated in a lot of that growth. One very interesting element, as you point out about the US, is that it has an enormous oil and gas industry. There are oil and gas services companies, drilling rigs all over the place, workover rigs, pipelines all over the place. Um, and so the, the, the depth of that industry certainly afforded itself to the development of the shale gas industry. But there were two very, very dramatic technological step changes that allowed shale gas to be commercialised in the US. And that was horizontal drilling, as you mentioned, and also high volume hydraulic stimulation or, or fracking, as it is colloquially known. Um, the reason, if, if I take a step back, the reason that those technological um, step changes were required is that prior to the advent of these new technologies, uh, companies would try to target sandstone formations that had very high permeability and porosity, which in very simplistic terms is essentially the gaps between each grain of sand in that reservoir, such that the gas is under pressure. There's lots of gaps between the, the grains of sand. And so you drill a hole into it and the pressure allows the gas to go up the wellbore and be produced. If it, and it's not just the gaps; it's the interconnectivity of the gaps as well. So yes. the, the, the porosity is the gaps; the, the permeability is the interconnectivity of those gaps. Sorry, yes. little interruption. Yes, and you know they had high permeability and high porosity in these sandstone formations. Shale, on the other hand, has low permeability and tends to have low porosity. And so, if you just drill a vertical hole into a shale formation you'll get what's called a gas kick, which is a little bit of gas comes back up through the wellbore, but certainly not enough to um, justify an economic development. Um, there was a, a very pioneer, pioneering company in Texas called Mitchell Drilling that about 20 years ago 
um, had been producing from one of these conventional sandstone formations for many decades. That field was running out of um, gas and shale gas had actually been what we call the source rock, which over millions and millions of years sends gas up from the shales into these conventional reservoirs. And so their uh, founder of Mitchell Drilling um, decided to start trying with fracking, which was a technology that had been used somewhat, but he tried it on shales and started getting pretty interesting results. Um, and then it was really the combination of that fracking, which which is really, a, in essence, just using hydraulic pressure to push down water and sand into these formations to fracture them or crack the rock. And then the sand goes into those cracks and holds the cracks open. It was the combination of that, but then also horizontal drilling that allowed shale gas to be commercialised. The reason horizontal drilling helped with commercialisation is that Typically in America, these rocks tend to be 20 or 30 metres thick. And so when you drill a vertical hole and you frack that, you're opening up 20 metres of rock. Whereas by going horizontal, in a single well, you could open up not 20 metres, but 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 metres of that rock. And that started generating the economic returns. The, the, the Americans are incredibly pioneering and entrepreneurial people. And those methodologies were... Uh, optimised over time, so learning how to drill into the best part of the rock horizontally, trialling lots of different types of fracture stimulation methodologies. Um, and now there's been you know, probably a couple of hundred thousand of these shale gas and shale oil wells drilled in America um, with incredible economic uh, benefits, I might say. You know, 70% of natural gas production in America now comes from shale they've got the cheapest gas prices in the world they're exporting gas all over the world um they, they now have energy independence both in gas and oil um in terms of where we are to go back to your question in in the beetaloo we are at an early stage there's been i think six horizontal wells drilled to date and Every basin in the world is different. They all have different rock characteristics that need to be taken into account. But one of the things that we really benefit from as an industry here in Australia is that we all of the active players in the Beetaloo are drawing on that US experience to apply the learnings from the US shale gas industry's development and apply them to the Beetaloo Basin. Um, it is certainly pretty early days, but what we are seeing is that even on, say, Empire's first horizontal well at Carpentaria 2H, we have seen results that are looking like they're economic, um, but we do expect continued improvements in productivity as we optimise these designs over time. What about um, across the rest of Australia, I mean, in other unconventional basins, is, is that um, I, I guess coming back to the question about the service industry, the 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 network of support, the the repository of experience and, and understanding and industry kind of capacity in Australia. You know, are there other people doing horizontal wells in other basins around Australia? Uh, it is it is limited in terms of the horizontal drilling and fracking here in Australia. Um, but what we have found is for these phases we're going through of exploration and appraisal and, and Empire will soon be moving into a pilot development phase. We as a company have found that there is sufficient services in Australia 
to do the work that we're doing right now. So as an example, in order to economically extract gas from the Beetaloo, we believe that we'll need to drill horizontal wells for production purposes that will be about two and a half to three kilometres of horizontal section. Our, our second well, Carpentaria 3H, we, we proved that we could drill to those legs. So we drilled uh, a 2.635 kilometre horizontal section all inside the Velkeri B zone that we're targeting. Um, and also we've been able to carry out these very large fracture stimulation jobs. And to put into perspective how big these frac jobs are for shale, um, in coal seam methane, which is a pretty well-known industry in Australia because it's spawned an entire LNG export industry out of Queensland, the typical frac job uh, on a coal seam methane well where the size is measured by the amount of sand you pump down, the amount of sand you would typically pump down on one of those wells might be 50,000 uh, imperial pounds of sand. Our first horizontal well, we pumped down 6 million pounds of sand. And on our second well, which had twice as many frac stages, we pumped down 13 million pounds of sand. So these are very, very large frac jobs. Um, and yet the existing uh, fleet of, of fracture stimulation uh, spreads, as we call them, which is essentially trucks that are designed to drive on the road and pump down the fluid and sand at high pressure, um, they were able to carry out those jobs very well for us. So, so for where we are at now in terms of getting this initial work done, there's enough equipment. Um, in terms of the expertise, we have frac experts here in Australia who manage our projects for us, but also we heavily draw on that US experience from the major US consultants. Um, but certainly for this basin to really realise its potential, which is truly an LNG scale industry that we foresee coming, um, we will need more equipment. Um, this has been recognised by some of our neighbours in the basin. So uh, Tamboran Resources is is the, uh, the other most active player in the basin. They have a very strong US um, uh, history, uh, a lot of US people in the company, US management, US board, they've actually brought over a, a, a high-spec drilling rig that is designed to drill these big wells, and, and the industry has plans to bring more rigs and more frac spreads into the Northern Territory. Um, and that another encouraging thing is that the NT government, who are very supportive of this industry, recognise that solving some of these logistical issues is going to be important and they are working very proactively with industry to uh, create pathways for logistics to come into the basin in an, in an efficient manner. I, I see that um, in your presentation, when you look about the kind of the pathways, the kind of the planned activities you've got, one of them is is Northern Territory Petroleum, um, what do you call it, uh, Production, a petroleum production license from the Northern Territories. T tell me about that in, in terms of the permitting process from the Northern Territories. Um, where, where have you got to? And you, you, you put that in as a deliverable for this year, 2023. Um, is, is, is that still on the cards? Yeah. So um, one major difference between operating onshore Australia and onshore US, for example, is that we do have very, very strict regulations in place in Australia. Um, and we as a company uh, uh, accept and uh, understand that you know there are um, you know shale gas is not well understood in Australia. Um, fracking's a, a, a term that can 
uh, bring up concern in people's minds, concerns around protection of aquifers, for example. Um, and, you know, also where we tend to be operating on, uh, on land over which there are Indigenous land rights. Uh, some of these properties have um, pastoralists who are running cattle on this land. Um, and so, you know, strict regulation is, is entirely appropriate in Australia. There was, there was concern about fracking uh, a number of years ago. The NT government put a moratorium on from 2016 to 2018. They carried out an incredibly extensive scientific inquiry, which found that if 135 recommendations were followed, fracking could be carried out safely, and those recommendations have now been implemented. Um, we have a very successful track record of a, as a company of operating within this very tight regulatory regime. So we've had four different environment management plans approved by the NT government, and we've operated safely and, and successfully and in an environmentally responsible manner under those regulations and under those plans. Um, and we are very busy working on all of those regulatory approvals uh, at the moment with a view to being in a construction phase next year. So there's a lot of work going on, but we are feeling pretty confident about getting those approvals. And um, one of the, uh, I often get asked, you know, why why doesn't the what UK do fracking? Um, you know, we've got we've got some, you know, why isn't there fracking? Why isn't there unconventional uh, sh shale gas being developed in the UK? And I say that one of the one of the challenges is the is the footprint. Um, um, they're not permanent installations, but during the process, you have to have quite a kind of quite a large. Uh, uh, land use um, impact and also kind of um, surface rights and that kind of stuff. And I also you, you mentioned uh, indigenous uh, heritage um, owners and um, uh, peoples. You also talk about uh, the pastoralists and one of your other um, pathways. Again, you're trying to complete this year is um, a native title. Do you need to get that done before you get the government? approvals and where are you in that process because again it's another one for 2023 um ideally yeah so essentially uh we are not allowed to carry out our activities without the full and informed prior consent of the traditional owners in, in that carpentaria area uh, it's actually got a, a relatively unique form of uh land title compared to the rest of the basin in that it is aboriginal land which means that the traditional owners of that area actually own uh, the fee simple land surface rights. Um, in the other parts of the basin, the fee simple land rights are owned by the Crown, uh, and then there are perpetual uh, uh, sorry pastoral leases uh, and then native title rights that apply to that land. Um, we have had a very successful relationship working with traditional owners over the last 12 years since we leased up this acreage. Uh, I think I'm, I'm losing track, but I think we've held 35 of what are called on-country meetings, which are meetings uh, facilitated by the Northern Land Council, which is a statutory body set up to help traditional owners uh, give effect to their land rights and, and also to ensure that when proponents such as ourselves come to uh, propose projects, they understand the risks, the benefits, um, what they're signing up to and so on and so forth. Um, 
I go to the majority of these on-country meetings myself, and I must say I, I love going to these on-country meetings. Um, I've actually taken my wife and young kids out to one of those meetings before, which was great. The kids had a lot of fun with the local Indigenous kids that day. Um, and every time I go to one of these meetings, the first thing I say to the traditional owners is that this is your land and we are acting as guests on your land. Um, and we have had a very, very good track record of getting the uh, full and informed prior consent of our traditional owner partners to carry out our work. There have also been areas in which we have sought to carry out work and the traditional owners have declined. So that shows that this system of uh, consent or non-consent works. Um, and in relation to the Carpentaria area where we are looking to move into production, we originally signed an exploration agreement with them. It was before I joined the company, but I believe it was 2014. That followed a three-year process of consultation. Um, it actually had to be signed off by the Australian Federal Government's Indigenous Affairs Minister, which gives you a sense of the level of scrutiny that occurs over these agreements. That was an expiration agreement that contained principles for a production agreement in the, in the back of that agreement. And what we are doing now is going through the process of moving those production principles into a production agreement. So while I don't want to preempt the results, um, I think the track record that we have of working with these partners of ours who own the land um, gives us a great deal of confidence that we will uh, get the, that agreement in place. And, you know, I was just in Darwin last week and I actually just randomly ran into one of the traditional owner elders on the street and, um, you know, he, his question was, you know, when are we going to be in a position for some of our younger people to start getting full-time jobs on your project? So that gives you a sense of the, the, the way that they're thinking about, you know, the way that we go about our, our business and the opportunities that can accrue. When it, when it goes right, it can, it, it can work very well. Um, <clears throat> coming into 2024, you can, you're going to have the, um, the financing for the, for the pilot plant. Um, I've experienced the, 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 the tie-ins to, you know, in the pilot plant development and going from, from concept to first gas is, is always quite a, um, a, a slow and arduous process. Have you, um, remind me what the capex figures are and kind of what your financing plans are for the, the kind of the delivery of the pilot plant next year. Yeah. So we, we haven't publicly disclosed the, the total estimated capex yet. And as you can Im imagine, as we go through the front end engineering and design process, those numbers tend to move around a bit. But, but essentially, there are, there are two sort of key buckets of capex that we will incur to move into first production. The first bucket of capex would involve drilling um, a small handful of development wells. Um, you know, and you you could count the number of those wells on one hand. Um, and, you know, the cost performance that we have generated to date indicates that those could be anywhere in the order of 20 to 30 million Australian dollars per well. Um, and then the other key piece of infrastructure that needs to go into place is surface facilities. So essentially, we've got a couple of different well pads that these wells are likely to be drilled from. So you need uh, the low, low pressure gas flow lines that will all move into a central unit next to the main pipeline. And then also um, the, the 
there is a specification to move gas into pipelines for sale, which requires that gas to be a much higher pressure. And so you have to compress that gas to increase the pressure into the sales pipeline spec. And that's called a compressor station. So it's essentially um, a series of large engines that take the gas from a low pressure and move it to a high pressure. Then we would obviously have things like, um, uh, you know, um, facilities for the staff and, you know, various safety measures to ensure that if there's an interruption that everything can be shut down safely. Um, and, and we're also working on the design of that project. So we've, we've got an amount of CapEx that I'm, I'm going to be a bit coy about right now, but it, you know, if you were just to use a very round number, it could be around 100 million Australian dollars or 100 to 150 million Australian dollars. Um, I should stress that that's a much lower number of US dollars than it was a while ago because the Aussie dollar's been absolutely smashed lately given that our interest rates haven't gone up as much as they have in the US. But um, so, so, you know, we've, we've got a, an envelope of sort of what we're looking at from a CapEx perspective. Um, and in terms of how we're looking to finance that, um, again, you know, I, I spent my former career uh, structuring and, and financing projects just like this. So smaller companies um, where there's, you know, a, a bit more risk involved to the investor than investing in, say, a BP or a Shell or whatever. Um, and essentially, we see that there will be um, a capacity for a level of project finance within that CapEx number. Um, uh, you know, Macquarie Bank does have an existing small facility with us. Um, it's the team I used to work in, and we're having a lot of good conversations about upsizing that facility. Uh, and then whatever gap is left in the CapEx bill beyond that amount, um, we have a few options that, uh, before us. So, you know, one could be just to go out and issue more shares on the share market, albeit, um, you know, as, uh, you know, acting in the best interests of shareholders, you know, we are looking to minimise that dilution. And, you know, from my own perspective, I've invested a lot of my own money in this company as well. Um and also, uh, we we are have a number of irons in the fire with potential joint venture partners who could look to come into this project. Um, one thing that is of significant interest to potential partners is that this pilot project, um, you know, we're talking about twenty five terajoules a day. To put that into perspective, at a ten Australian dollar gas price, which is not an outrageous price in the current market conditions. That'd spit off somewhere in the order of 60 million Australian dollars of, of free cash flow at the asset level a year after deducting off OPEX and uh, royalties. Um, but this is very much the first phase. This this resource we have in the Beta Lou in both our assets and others is, is truly of an enormous and global scale. And there are existing pathways to market to send gas to the two existing LNG plants in Darwin and, and also potentially the three existing LNG plants in Gladstone in Queensland. Um, and the types of parties that are looking for long-term gas offtake um, either into Australia's east coast and or um, into North Asia, which is increasingly hungry for gas, um, they it, it gives them a, a very interesting degree of optionality where they can put in some money now see how they go and if it's if it's going well then look at 
investing significantly larger amounts of money for multi-decade LNG offtake. So you've got all of this kind of good news. You've got the kind of the the the, the technology is going well. The, the resource is growing. The you know it all looks rosy, and yet. When I look at your share price and the share price of Tambrin Resources, you're kind of in, in a lockstep, um, yes. pretty ugly chart pattern. You know, the, the, both of you are, you know, share prices are kind of a, a year lows or possibly even a multi-year low. Um, mm. How do you turn that, you know, why is that? And what are the catalysts to turn it around? There's a couple of factors that hit play here. So first of all, um, the macro environment for small cap capital intensive stocks in many industries, but particularly resources, is horrible at the moment. I mean, no, I don't don't I know <laughs> it. My goodness, I know That's I've probably got about twenty small cap stocks in my portfolio, and they're they're pretty much all trading at multi year lows at the moment, which is very painful. But that's that's no excuse for our share price, and I need to focus on our share price and our shareholders. I think also. Um, there is a perception in the market generally when it comes to stocks in the Beetaloo that this is going to be an incredibly capital intensive journey to getting to cash flow. Um, you know, between us and Tamboran, hundreds of millions of dollars have been raised over recent years. Certainly, we, we're at the, the lower end of that scale. Um, and I think investors look at this basin and they think that it's just going to take lots more equity raise rounds to, to get to the point where um, this can be commercialised. Um, to that end, our company has been very focused on taking what is an enormous resource and could potentially have billions and billions of dollars invested in it over time. And we've really tried to break it down into clear stages that are bite-sized pieces of capital to to get us up the learning curve and you know if you look at if you look at the scale of our pilot project and I mentioned 25 terajoules a day there's a very deliberate reason why we chose that level of production which is that there's a pipeline running straight through our basin it currently sends about 9 or 10 terajoules a day out to the MacArthur River zinc mine once that level of demand is filled, then the flow of the um, pipeline can be reversed to send gas out into other Northern Territory and Queensland markets, which I must say are screaming out for gas. And, and that allows us to break down that first piece of CapEx into this 100 or 150 million Australian dollar piece, focus on that, and then get cash flow and production going, and then put a put essentially a benchmark underneath the value of our company for further growth. And, you know, if I think back to my former investing career, the, the there were lots of players in the Queensland coal seed methane industry. There were lots of them listed on the ASX. These were stocks that were trading in similar patterns to us for a long, long time. Um, Queensland Gas is an example. One of the most successful coal steam gas companies at started off at about, you know, 15, 10, 20 cents a share, was ultimately acquired by BG Group for $5.65 a share. One of the things that that company did very, very successfully was they found ways for early commercialization so that they could recycle that capital they were generating rather than just drilling a well, fracking it, flow testing it, and seeing that gas flared as opposed to sold. So, that's a really big driver of, of what we're doing. Um, 
I think another factor that has impacted all hydrocarbon companies, and you know, I'm an investor in Santos, for example, which seems to be trading at extraordinarily cheap prices right now, has just been the you know um, the significant negative press against our industry. I think there is a very very poor understanding generally um, around the ongoing role of hydrocarbons in our society. Um, we are fundamentally a hydrocarbon-based society. It's caused an extraordinary growth in living standards, um, life expectancy, um, reduction in child mortality, improved diet, um, and, and that is definitely going to continue for many, many years to come. And I think with that ESG wave, that's probably caused a bit of pressure as well. Yeah, I could be, I could be um, listening to myself talking to my family or to my friends. Well, well, yeah. um, and I'm absolutely with you on the on the the role of hydrocarbons in our society. So, from what you've said, uh, it kind of seems to me that the kind of the key catalyst is is going to uh, be linked to um, an indication of what, how you can make that first step on that chunk bite-sized kind of um, incremental journey to production so it's it's really kind of ring fencing the equity dilution is is, is perhaps the key thing listen we've, we've been talking for um qu quite a while um I, we've we've unpacked lots of really good stuff lots of news flow to come out from you this quarter but it, it, it would would you say that kind of the the financing solution or the kind of the strategy for bridging the the capital gap? I mean, you've got a, just under twenty million dollars Aussie on the balance sheet. Is, is would you see that as the kind of the the key unlocking step of this of the the next phase of the journey? Uh, certainly, from our company's perspective, yes, that is that is our focus. We have we've now carried out a lot of work to demonstrate the potential early stage productivity of this basin. Um, I should note as well that there is significant drilling, fracking and flow testing results coming up across the basin, which will continue to answer a number of these key questions around economics. And I wish the very best to our neighbours across the basin uh, with, with their results. Um, but yeah, really from our perspective, being able to move into this phase of pilot production will be critical. And um, I'll just quickly touch on a couple of the reasons why. It's not just about balance sheet sustainability, but also um, there is a lot of interest in this basin from the likes of the major US shale gas companies, um, particularly following the recent entry into the basin of a very high profile oil and gas figure by the name of Brian Sheffield um, from, from Texas. Um, but for those large companies to really come in and spend billions of dollars opening up basins, what they're looking for is multiple well results from th the, the three-kilometre lateral wells and not just 30 or 60 or 90-day flow tests, but longer-term flow tests. And so it also helps us answer some of those key technical questions. And so that's really why we're so focused on this pilot project. Good. Alex, thank you very much. I look forward to getting more updates as the, as the plan progresses. Thank you very much, Merlin. Great to talk.